Thank you. It's a great joy to be with you and to think about uh, the mission of the church and uh, the worldwide spread of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the spread of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes I feel like in an evening like this, it's like um, being at the dentist and uh, before you get the shot of Novocaine in your gum, first the dentist rubs uh, some pineapple flavored juice of some sort to sort of numb it up a little more. Then after that, he gives you the real stuff to knock you out. So you've had a nice meal and your stomachs are full. You've had the juice sort of, you know, rubbed all over you and now it's up to me to knock you out. <clears throat> well, I hope, I hope not. I hope that we can together um, begin to take a look at the mission of the church and the spread of the kingdom of God and think about where you fit in that and where this church fits in that worldwide spread of the kingdom of God. And also um, to pull back a little bit from just the day-to-day activities of a local church trying to do ministry and think about where you fit in the great scheme of things and what God has been doing now uh, at least for the last 2,000 years through the proclamation of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what I want to do is look at the kingdom parables, some of them, of our Lord Jesus Christ and think about them from this perspective that Jesus is giving these kingdom parables to his disciples and to us as well as followers of Christ in order to train us, in order to prepare them for kingdom ministry and gospel ministry. What should they expect as the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed? So if you'll look with me uh, this evening at Matthew 13, uh, verses 24 to 30, you're looking at the, the parable of the, the sowing of the wheat and the tares, and then Jesus gives explanation of it in verses 36 to 43, so we'll skip down to verse 36. So if you follow your copy of the scriptures, Hear now the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Jesus presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, if you skip down to verse 36, then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us 
the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let them hear. When my children were in elementary school, we had four children, two girls and two boys, we used to spend every spring break uh, on some part of the Appalachian Trail. We didn't try to do too much of it. We always had one child that was either way behind us or way out ahead of us. He wasn't much with us. And uh, the others wandered about here and there. So it was a challenge, as you can well imagine. But we would find some part of the, the Appalachian Trail and try to hike it during the day. We'd park our car on one occasion at Unicoi Gap, just north of Helen, Georgia. Uh, and then we would hike several miles straight up, stop and eat lunch at some place, uh, some lookout point or another, and then hike back out. There's a particular lookout on that hike at Trey Mountain. It's about 4,430 feet above sea level. And supposedly on a clear day, from the summit of Trey Mountain, looking slightly west of due south, it's possible to see Stone Mountain just west of Atlanta about 100 miles away. Now, when Jesus told the disciples to meet him in Galilee after his resurrection, he took them also up on a mountain. Many believe that Mount Arbel, which is directly to the west of the Sea of Galilee, which is about 1,250 feet in height, is the place where Jesus gave his disciples the Great Commission to go and disciple the nations of the earth. And from that place, uh, they could stand with their vision uh, not obstructed by anything and look as far as they could north, as far as they could south, as far as they could east, as far as they could west. But even if they could look a hundred miles to the northwest, they could not see the British Isles. But today, I could take you to Sheffield, England, and you could worship with me in a church that's been there since 1629 with Kevin Bidwell. Or to Newcastle, where you support a missionary named Benjamin Wantrop, and you could worship God. They could not see to the west all the way to Albania. But today, you could go with me 
and worship with one of your missionaries, Bertie Kona, in Albania, where the kingdom of God has gone. They could not see or even imagine South America. And yet today, you can travel to the city of Cajamaca, Peru, and worship with Alonzo Ramirez, a missionary you support, and Juan de Santa Cruz and Luis Mendoza, also in your list of missionaries. The Lord Jesus Christ launched his kingdom in this world, and he will one day reclaim this world, and also in the new heavens and new earth, he will restore this world. Now, for the purposes of our discussion during this missions conference and our study of these kingdom parables, um, we're going to use a definition of the kingdom given to us in the Westminster Confession of Faith. There are a lot of different ways you can talk about what the kingdom means. Some very broad definitions, all encompassing of everything under the sun. Some very narrowly construed, but for our purposes, we'll talk about the kingdom of God in the way that the Westminster Confession of Faith explains it in chapter 25 in the chapter of the church. Paragraph two, when it states the church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1.13 that God has transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. So we think about the church as an expression of or the manifestation of the rule of King Jesus. It is in our study, the kingdom of God. So I'm taking these kingdom parables then to speak about the proclamation of the gospel and the establishment and growth of the church throughout the world. Jesus is preparing his disciples for their mission. He's training them through the use of these kingdom parables. What should they expect as they go about through the world proclaiming the kingdom gospel? So from the first parable, this one about uh, the wheat and the tares, I want you to note two overriding characteristics of the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom like? So we first note from this, the kingdom is worldwide in scope. The kingdom of heaven will not be like earthly kingdoms restricted to one people, one tribe, one nation, one locality, but the kingdom of what Jesus is uh, preaching will be unlimited in terms of its worldly impact and scope. It will be worldwide, reaching to the very ends of the earth. Now, as we begin this study of this parable, let's make sure we understand all the elements of the parable, because there's been some confusion about that. Um, about this, we don't need to guess, for our Lord in verses 36 and following tells us exactly what he means by every aspect of the parable. Uh, the sower, verse 37, he tells us, is the son of man. It is a reference to Daniel 7, 13 and 14, when the son of man is coming 
on the clouds ascending into the heavens and under the Ancient of Days, and he receives a kingdom from God Almighty uh, that is to remove all other kingdoms and conquer them all. This is Jesus himself and all those sent out by him to proclaim the kingdom of gospel. And then there is the field. What is the field? Verse 38 tells us the field is the world and not Galilee or just Canaan. It is the world. It encompasses the whole of this globe on which we live called the earth. The kingdom, uh, the, the, the field is the world. It is not the church. It is that place into which the Son of Man sows the seed. The church is in the world, but uh, the church is, the, the field is not the church. Now, some commentators have argued this parable is given to make us patient with evil men who exist in the church. I've even heard this parable used as an argument against the practice of church discipline. Uh, we shouldn't remove people from the church because then we're pulling the, the, the tares out. We might pull out wheat, but that's not what Jesus has in mind. Jesus expressly states the field is the world, not the church. Verse 41 might give some credence to that. We'll deal with that later. But if the field is the church, as some contend, then not only does this parable teach that evil men are in the church, but also that no effort should be made to remove them. That cannot be true, for elsewhere our Lord commends uh, the practice of discipline, the removal of evil men who will not repent from the church. So the field is the world into which the sons of the kingdom are planted. The church, the sons of the kingdom are in this world. The good seed, of course, are the sons of the kingdom. Verse 38 makes that very clear. Those who belong to the king, who have come to know him as their king, who are subjects of the kingdom, who is the king who is Jesus. The tares, we are told, those are the sons of the evil one, unregenerate men, unsaved men, who live in rebellion against the king. The enemy is Satan, the devil, the arch enemy of the king and his kingdom. He is the prince of the kingdom of darkness. And the harvest, of course, is the day of judgment, a day this coming. Uh, when Christ shall return and send out his reapers, the angels, messengers of God, servants of God, tasked with gathering the unbelievers to stand before God on the day of judgment. So those are the elements of the parable. What is the purpose of the kingdom sons? Why are they planted in the world. Some would say that our Lord is only interested in taking people out of the world and send, sending them to heaven. And certainly he does take us out of this world. But John 17 tells us that after he removes us from the world of darkness, he then sends us back into the world that we might have an impact on the world. Here we are told that he plants kingdom sons and daughters in the world. Why does he do that? It is clear that the world is by right of creation God's field. The word for world in our text is cosmos, the created order. Notice that the field belongs to the farmer and that an enemy invades the field 
there are some who believe that the world belongs to the devil, uh, but this is clearly not taught in this parable. The world belongs to God. Notice that the tares are planted afterwards, not before the wheat. Tares are surreptitiously sown into a wheat field, not wheat sown into a tare field. This then is the scope of this kingdom. The kingdom's sons are sown into the world. The scope is worldwide. The kingdom's sons are placed in the world because the world belongs to the king and kingdom sons are placed in the world to promote the cause of the king in the world. They are there to proclaim the message of the king. They are to proclaim the kingdom gospel. So Jesus in Mark 1, verses 14 to 15, we are told, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So this is our mission. It is to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and the scope of this mission is nothing less than the entirety of this world. Now right now the world population is somewhere just below 8 billion people. Africa has 1.3 billion. 15% of the world's population live on the African continent and about, depending on whose stats you believe, I'm just taking the ones that I've read here recently, 48% in the African continent claim some kind of Christianity. That's astounding, isn't it? North America has 400 million people much less, 77% of which would claim some kind of Christianity. I know what you're thinking when you hear that. Oh, yeah, really, 77%. Uh, that can't be a true figure. It's got to be something far less than that. I believe that's probably true as well. But at least 77% claim some kind of Christianity, Eastern Orthodox, Christ, uh, Roman Catholic, uh, Protestant, whatever it might be. Latin America has 600 million 92% claim some kind of Christianity. 77% of that, of course, is Roman Catholic. This is an aberrant understanding of the gospel. Asia, 4.5 billion people. Christian, 9%. High mark. Muslim, 26%. Hindu, 23%. Buddhist, 11%. There's a great challenge. Has been from day one to proclaim the kingdom gospel in that part of the world. But that's part of our mission. We can't say, well, we don't need to worry about that part of it. The kingdom scope, though, is worldwide. Europe, 750 million people, 71% supposedly some kind of Christianity. Pacific Islands, 41 million, about 74% supposedly some kind of Christian faith. But all of them, all eight billion of them, are our focus. They are, our scope needs to be as large as is the global population of this earth. And in some way or another, 
Every church needs to embrace that in some way. The kingdom of God, kingdom gospel is to be preached all over the world. This is our mission. Jesus took his disciples to the top of Mount Arbel so they could look out upon the vast world before them, north, south, east, and west. The nations of the earth laid out before them some they knew about, many of them they knew nothing about. And they were to proclaim the kingdom gospel until the world was permeated with the gospel. How ambitious. How seemingly arrogant that a little band of 11 men in a tiny little nation would set out on such a mission. And at the judgment day, Jesus says, the Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who have committed lawlessness. Note that uh, the tares were sown into the kingdom, in, into the world, but when the judgment comes, they are gathered out of the kingdom. Isn't that odd? I'm not sure what the answer to that is. It's perplexing. We know that, according to Jesus, the field is the world. The field is not the church. The church is planted into the field, the son's kingdom son, so the church is in the world. But on judgment day, we are told uh, that the tares are gathered out of the kingdom. I would expect him to write to say they would be gathered out of the world could it be that the answer is found in Revelation 11, verse 15, where it is stated, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Maybe so. So what is your mindset when you think about Woodruff Road uh, Presbyterian Church and your missions conference and uh, what your mission is right here, and then what you have uh, as your mission engagement with nations around the world. What is your mindset concerning your life as, as a believer? Personally, locally, globally, do you see yourself as a son or daughter of the kingdom, kingdom sons and daughters who have been planted in this world? And how can you then contribute to the worldwide expanse of that kingdom, proclaiming salvation in Christ the King and planting more kingdom sons and daughters all over the world, establishing churches, as it were, kingdom outpost? This is our mission here, home missions. This is our mission there, world missions, plant kingdom sons and daughters by the gospel of grace plant kingdom outposts churches all over the world so the first characteristic I want you to note is that the kingdom is worldwide in scope and then secondly I want you to note it is embattled in its progress 
Even as our Lord's parable would teach us that the scope of the kingdom embraces the world, every tribe, tongue, and nation, we should not get the idea that this task will be easily accomplished. In fact, as long as the kingdom is in this world, it will encounter opposition. It is warfare. Notice that the farmer, we are told, has an enemy, and Jesus tells us this enemy is the devil. <clears throat> Satan, a fallen angelic being who has more power than you have, but is still a creature, but lives every moment of his life in rebellion against God and fostering rebellion everywhere and anywhere that he can. He has invaded God's world and he's sown tares among the wheat. Is this not exactly what Satan did in the Garden of Eden? And he's been doing it ever since. We must never think that the evil that is in the world is just part of the way things are. Yin and yang, the dark side of the force, a part of reality. Rather, evil in the world is an invasion of God's field. It is perversion. It is abnormality. The tear is an obnoxious weed that does not belong in the field. Nevertheless, it's been sown there. How would you feel if, maybe some of you are gardeners, I don't know, if you worked real hard and got your soil all tilled up and you planted all your seeds and everything, and everything was going great, and then the next thing you know, somebody comes over to your house at night and is out there planting the most obnoxious weed you can imagine in your garden. And then another week goes by and the thing is full of this nasty weed everywhere. There is war being waged in this world, for this world, and the sons of the kingdom of God are opposed by the sons of the kingdom of Satan. It is warfare in which by the spirit of God we promote the cause of the king by preaching the gospel of Jesus Kingdom mission is spiritual warfare. I think sometimes we forget that. We're surprised at the opposition in the world. It is not won by the ingenuities of men or by the powers of men or by the strategies of men. It is won by the power of the kingdom gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. It is by the preaching of the kingdom gospel that men are transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Probably one of the most, my most, most favorite shorter catechism questions is how does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself. In ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. So the gospel of the kingdom is kingdom uh, warfare, is spiritual battle. Nevertheless, it experiences great success, although there is no imagery in this parable of warfare between the tares and the wheat. They're just both present. They both occupy God's field. The scripture elsewhere is full of such imagery, isn't it? 
2 Corinthians 10, verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Romans 16, verse 20, The God of peace shall soon crush Satan under your feet. 1 John 3, verse 8, uh, The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. And verse 41 of our text states, The Son of Man will send forth his angels. They will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. Now some have suggested that by harvest time, when, the, when he gathers stumbling blocks out of the kingdom, the kingdom gospel has had such a permeating influence in all the world that the kingdom has had a dominant influence. But the kingdom is not established in the world without opposition, and all the disciples of Christ must know this. Missions is kingdom warfare. Christ planted his kingdom in this world. It is embattled in progress, but it is progressing nevertheless until it is found all over the world. Now, over the past 20 centuries, the kingdom of God has experienced much opposition, but yet it is still spreading from sea, from the river to the ends of the earth, Psalm 72 verse 8 says. Um, and so the kingdom of God spread westward from Jerusalem into Asia Minor and up into Europe and was having an impact there. And then Islam comes. In the early Middle Ages, and now many realms that were under the influence of the kingdom and sons of the kingdom is now full of tares. And in the Middle Ages, a false gospel of works invaded the church and spread all throughout the world. Today, we are experiencing a growing secularism in the West, Western Europe and North America, and we are greatly embattled. But that should not surprise us. The tares are all around us, but we labor on. We need gospel workers. We need kingdom sons who will hear the call of God to go into all the world and preach the gospel. The kingdom is worldwide. The kingdom is embattled. And then lastly, the kingdom um, is a mixture while the kingdom is on the earth. The kingdom mission will not be complete until the judgment comes. Now, we might say, uh, well, the kingdom is worldwide in scope. It's in battle and progress. So when will the world be completely free of the tares? Well, we note the, the continuing presence of tares and also the purging of the tares. What should God's kingdom sons do about the tares? When we know that the world is God's field, then how do we tolerate the tares? Should they go about ripping them out? Let's purify the world. Well, Jesus, of course, told us that's not the case. Uh, verse 29, he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Remember, the field is the world, thus to pull up tares is to take them out of the world. It's not the responsibility of kingdom sons to take the sons of the evil one out of the world. 
except as we may transfer them from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. The physical sword is not ours to wield. The kingdom of God is not advanced by steel and coercion. Ours is a spiritual mission, not by swords loud clashing, but by deeds of love and mercy the heavenly kingdom comes. So tares, the lost, uh, will be in the earth until the judgment comes. Now, some of you may know that I've been involved with um, helping mission works in Peru now for some 20 years. And um, you may be aware of how the quote-unquote kingdom came to South America, especially into um, the land of Peru. The Spanish conquistador Francisco Pizarro would have done well to learn the lesson about uh, how kingdom sons deal with the tares. In Michael Wood's book, uh, Conquistadors, he tells the story of Pizarro's encounter with the Inca Atahualpa. They confronted him in the square there in the city of Cajamaca, where Alonso Ramirez works now. And uh, in the Plaza Mayor, in the middle of Cajamaca, there was a confrontation between Pizarro and his 200 or so uh, Spanish soldiers and their um, weapons and about 30,000 uh, Incans. Atahualpa had an encounter with um, Pizarro and Pizarro, Atahualpa now replied that he could not change his belief in the immortal son and the other Inca deities. He asked um, the monk that was with Pizarro what authority he had for his own belief and the friar told him it was written in the book which he was holding. The Inca said, then give me the book so it can speak to me. So the book was handed up to him and he began to eye it carefully and listen to it page by page. He turned the pages, put it up to his ear. At last he asked, why doesn't the book say anything to me? And still sitting on his throne, he threw it to the ground uh, with a haughty disdain. And then the monk shouted that the Indians were against the Christian faith and gave the order to attack and thousands were slaughtered in the plaza of Cajamaca. And then Atahualpa was taken hostage and the governors, they required gold and silver. They got seven tons of gold with 13 tons of silver. That's not the way the kingdom of God is to be spread. Is there anything we can do about the tares in God's field? Yes. Evangelize. Wield the sword of the spirit, the word of God. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Now, the parable does not explicitly state this, but from other parts of Scripture, we understand that we can see tares miraculously transformed into wheat by God's sovereign grace until the day of judgment arrives, and then comes the purging of the tares. And then the field, 
will finally and completely be restored to its rightful owner, possessed by the sons of the kingdom as their rightful inheritance. And until then, like the servants of the farmer, we wait and we sow more gospel sons. The Lord has planted kingdom sons in the earth to engage in this gospel mission in all the world. You are his kingdom sons and daughters. In verse 41, verse 43, Jesus says, Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. So here's a question for you to ask yourself. Am I a kingdom son or a kingdom daughter? Am I laboring for the spread of the kingdom in this world? Promoting the kingdom gospel of grace that can make men who look like tares become kingdom sons all over the world. close with some stats from uh, a study that was done at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary recently that tells us what some of the situation is in the world in the day in which you are living. Seven encouraging trends to note in their 2022 status of global Christianity. I'm not going to read all seven, not tonight. Number one, religious faith is growing faster than irreligious. Particularly in the West, it can, be, it can seem as if secularism is growing and people are leaving the church and the faith. Globally, this is not the case. While populations of all religions are growing at a rate of 1.27%, the growth rate of the religiously unaffiliated is less than half that, 0.52% well below the total population growth percentage. In particular, they found atheism is almost stagnant, growing at only 1.8% per year, that is 0.18% per year. And a 2015 Pew Research study also predicts the number of unaffiliated will shrink in terms of the share of global population. According to the Gordon Conwell Report, there are fewer atheists around the world today, 147 million, than in 1970, with the number expected to continue declining through 2050. Not only is religion growing overall, but Christian especially is growing with a 1.17% growth rate, almost 2.56 billion people will identify as Christian by the middle of 2022, it's now 2023. And by 2050, that number will, be, will top 3.33 billion. Catholics remain the largest Christian group, I know that's a problem, with also 1.26 billion adherents. But the two fastest growing Christian groups around the world are evangelicals at 1.8%, and charismatics at 1.88%. Christ planted his kingdom seed in this world 2,000 years ago. It is still growing. Our 
global, our objective is still worldwide, still global, and the needs are great. In Albania, 0.5% are evangelical, where Bertie Kona is. In Germany, where Sebastian Heck is, 2.1% are evangelical. In Hungary, 2.8% evangelical. In England, 8.8% are evangelical. The needs are great. May God use you as he's been using you, continue to use you, to spread this kingdom gospel north, south, east, and west to the far ends of the earth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel that has come to this place far, far away from Jerusalem and over these last 2,000 years has spread from one end of the earth to the other. Lord, I pray that you would grant us strength and encouragement to continue the work 